Hi, I'm Will Brem, a lecturer in education and international development here at the UCL Institute of Education. When I'm not teaching or researching, I'm also the host of Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. Fresh Ed has over 200 episodes on a range of cutting-edge topics in education. The IOE podcast has kindly asked me to share with you an episode I recorded with Professor Michael Young earlier this year that explores his idea of powerful knowledge. The concept has sparked a major debate about what should and should not be taught in schools. In our conversation, I asked Professor Young where the idea came from and how his own thinking has evolved over his career. I hope you enjoy the show today, but please stop by freshedpodcast.com to hear the rest of our catalog. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brent. Today, we talk about powerful knowledge, a concept that has sparked a major debate about what should be taught in schools. My guest is Michael Young, a professor of sociology of curriculum at UCL's Institute of Education. Power can either mean power over, also means power to do certain things, to think certain things. So in a sense, power's always got those dimensions. And the problem, what sociology has emphasized, is always the power of domination, because it's a very powerful factor in societies, the domination of knowledge. But it tends to neglect the fact students of whatever social class can actually acquire knowledge that empowers them. Michael's work in sociology has been criticized by both the right and the left. That's why I wanted to sit down with him to unpack what he even means by the concept powerful knowledge and how it applies to schools. Where did the idea come from? How has his own thinking evolved over his career? In the early 90s, I went out, I spent a lot of time in South Africa as a kind of consultant with the democratic movement on developing a new education system. And the only theory I had at the time was a social construction theory, which basically said, basically, you should let everyone be free to construct their own knowledge. But of course, the poor teachers had to close. And in a sense, and what I have been doing ever since, is trying to recover from that idea to realize that there is actually something real about the world. We don't just social construct as we will. We social construct an external world whether it's social or material or whatever. Michael Young has worked at the Institute of Education for over 50 years. A student of Basil Bernstein, he has had a major impact on the field of sociology of education since the publication of his first book, Knowledge and Control, in 1971. Much of our conversation today focuses on his 2008 book, Bringing Knowledge Back In. Michael Young? Welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm very delighted to uh, be involved. So you have this idea of powerful knowledge, and it sort of has taken on a life of its own in many ways. Could you just define the concept of powerful knowledge? How would you tell a student, for instance, what this idea is? I think that there would be many definitions. And uh, what I can do is say something about the starting ideas that, in fact, led to it. And um, I suppose what I wanted to do when I came up with the idea, and I don't know it was uniquely me, but there was, was, I was focusing more on educational research in sociology. And I thought that it was important that, in fact, we refocused 
how we approach questions about the curriculum in sociology. And so I came up, I gave a talk at the Institute in about 2007, 2008, about the future direction of research. And uh, it, and I made this distinction, which I think is a very important one, between knowledge of the powerful and powerful knowledge. And on the whole, the sociological tradition has been to focus on knowledge the curriculum as knowledge of the powerful. And that comes from basically a left Marxist tradition, which basically sees the knowledge that people get access to as ideology, masking the nature of the society that in fact we're in. So for instance, it would be the people in power who are writing the curriculum, writing the syllabi, writing the textbooks, their knowledge, their interests are being reproduced inside the curriculum. And that is the knowledge of the powerful. And in a sense, what the sociologists did was to expose this. And I felt that there was time we had to stop uh, because actually it was an oversimplification of this. Because although that knowledge of the powerful idea has got some truth in it. It's also true that, in fact, people can get quite other kinds of things from being educated in a school system, university system, in a, a Western capitalist society. And what they can get is access to what I call powerful knowledge. So, in a sense, there's a tension within um, education systems in capitalist society. You know, on the one hand, wanting to perpetuate a particular social order, but also having no alternative but to give access to criticism of that social order. And this is an argument that, in fact, Basil Bernstein makes quite powerfully in his work. Right. So what would be an example in today's world of powerful knowledge as you see it? um, Joan Muller, who's a colleague I work with from Cape Town, he and I um, decided we had to try and write a paper actually trying to answer that question. And I think the important thing to say is that, in fact, and this is where Bernstein comes in, is that, in fact, the meaning of powerful knowledge depends on the the field of knowledge you're talking about. And in a sense, uh, there is a tendency for the model for the natural sciences to be seen as a definitive one across the whole of the field of knowledge. Because, unequivocally, if we think back to industrialization, the knowledge that's transformed the society is the scientific knowledge and the increasing emphasis of the sciences in industry, manufacturing, and so forth. But I'm not wanting to negate that, but what is extremely important is to recognize that, in a sense, the knowledge fields are differentiated and that, in fact, you have the social sciences, you have the humanities, you, you have the, you know, the and uh, I think the key thing, this is the point that Bernstein makes, which I think is quite useful, that in fact, depending on which, which field you're in, knowledge progresses in different ways. New knowledge is developed in different ways. According to, now, in the natural sciences, it's developed through the process of greater generalization and abstraction so that, in fact, Einstein incorporates uh, Newton and all the 19th century in his field. It doesn't mean that they were wrong, but they were partial, and Einstein provided a broader theory. Quantum theory uh, and uh, so forth is an attempt to combine uh, those, and there's the endless attempt in physics, which is to bring, in a sense, relativity and quantum theory together. Right. So, so basically, powerful knowledge, in a way, you're saying is that 
once you differentiate between fields or yes. disciplines, there are different sort of traditions in those disciplines right. that sort of legitimate yes. powerful knowledge. And, and I think one of the words you use is specialized yes. knowledge. So what's the difference between specialized knowledge and, say, non-specialized knowledge? Well, non-specialized knowledge is the knowledge that's developed without reflection in communities and is valuable to make sense of the world that people grow up in. So that in a sense, non-specialized knowledge is about the streets you live in, whether there's a shop here or there, what buses go and where they go. That's everyday knowledge, as discussed, for instance, particularly by the psychologist Vygotsky. And indeed, it's Durkheim uses the term profane knowledge for that. That it's, uh, it's knowledge of experience. I think the big difference between specialized starting assumption between specialized and unspecialized is that it's knowledge from experience or it's knowledge that goes beyond experience. And that, in fact, I quite often give the example that, in fact, a city, a young person in the city, knows quite a lot of, has a lot of knowledge of the city that he or she has grown up in. And at the age, depending of seven or eight or nine, he suddenly meets a geography teacher, and the geography teacher has specialised knowledge of cities, what happens to them, how they've changed, different parts of the city affect in different kinds of ways, and in a sense, you get what the some of the researchers say is a disruption, uh, a disruption between the specialised knowledge of a field like geography, which relies upon research, inquiry, debate within a community, and the everyday knowledge, which is also about the city, urban geography or urban sociology is about the city, so is the young boy growing up in the city. Or the black taxi driver's knowledge. That's right, of the taxi driver's is knowledge indeed, you know. Yeah, yeah. But so that would know. be everyday knowledge. That, that would be everyday be, knowledge. That yes, would be indeed. the profane, to um, use Durkheim's yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in a sense, the interesting thing is that there's also a difference between um, codified and uncodified knowledge. Meaning? And in a sense, uh, specialised knowledge means that, in fact, it's more than just organising knowledge. I mean, the taxi driver's knowledge is codified, so you can test them, do they know it, and so forth. But it's not specialised in the sense that it never progresses. You just have to keep up with what's going on, where the new roads are built, and so forth. And in a sense, it's different from... The, the person who lives in an area who has uncodified knowledge about the names of the streets and the pubs and the shops and things like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay. Now, I mean, you know, the specialized, non-specialized knowledge, it seems like it's a dichotomy that might be too absolute in a way. Would you, you know, is there some gray area where there could be types of powerful knowledge that is both specialized and non-specialized? I think that in a modern industrial society, these categories, I mean, to use the term that great German sociologist Max Weber uses, are ideal types. They are not descriptions, and therefore somebody's knowledge will always have bits of specialized and bits of unspecialized. But when you move, say, from everyday knowledge of a city to a geography teacher, then you get a focus and a specialization is focused. It doesn't mean that you throw out the unspecialized knowledge, but it's a different way of thinking 
And in right. that sense, it's a, students find it difficult right. to make that step. So, so, okay, so we have knowledge that is specialized, we have knowledge that is unspecialized as ideal types, and then we still have this knowledge of the powerful. And would that be, that sort of fits into specialized and non-specialized as well? The um, knowledge of the powerful is a way of thinking about specialized knowledge, um, whereas powerful knowledge is another way of thinking about specialized knowledge. Because in a sense, if you're focusing from the point of view of knowledge of the powerful, you focus on ideological assumptions, you focus on who has the knowledge, what interests does it protect, and so forth, those kind of things. So it's not so much, so it's a question of how you think about it rather than that. Right, right, okay. And so, I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about knowledge. What about the word powerful? Like, how are you conceptualizing the very idea of power? I think it's, quite, it's an important point. Joe Muller and I, we wrote a paper in the curriculum journal last year, uh, which in fact revisits the question of power, uh, because we realized that in a sense, and particularly important for education, that in fact, for instance, you come across new literature or new sciences, then in a sense, on the one hand, that is powerful knowledge, but it also has powers through knowing it. And therefore, what we realized was that in a sense, power can either mean, can mean power over, it also means power to do certain things, to think certain things. So in a sense, power's always got those dimensions. Mm -hmm. And the problem, was, to some extent, is that what sociology has emphasized is always the power of domination, because it's a very powerful, it's a very significant factor in societies, the domination of knowledge. But it tends to neglect the fact that, in fact, um, students of whatever social class can actually acquire knowledge that empowers them. So that, in a sense, somebody like Paulo Freire is talking about the emancipatory potential of knowledge, whereas, in fact, uh, somebody like Althusser and Bourdieu is talking about dominating power of knowledge. Right, okay. So there are two very, very different notions of knowledge. Re yeah, very different notions. And that makes it a complex issue for students actually studying and thinking about it. They want to see it as simple, that either it's power over or it's power two. Right. It's never. And it's both, and it's and both. At, at the same time. Yeah, and at that's, the same time. And that's yes. difficult to then mm. And this is something that's always true right. about social right. organization. Mm. And so would all specialized knowledge be powerful? Would all specialized knowledge be powerful? Um, again, it depends. The reason why people specialize is to further knowledge, mm. and in a sense, to make it generate new ideas, extend their imagination about the world, or make predictions more powerful, so that uh, the purpose of specialization is always to increase the power. And I think that, but on the other hand, for instance, if you take the knowledge of physicists about the nature of the atom, then that actually can lead to Hiroshima as much as it can lead to a, a way of producing energy. Right, right. So, and uh, so uh, 
it's not so much whether it's always powerful, but it's powerful with different consequences. And in different times. So it can, yeah, at yeah. one time, it can be yeah, yeah. a domination over That's certain right. people. At other times, it can be an and emancipatory. You can't, really, you can't really escape that. We have the dramatic case of it now about um, artificial intelligence. It's actually incredibly productive, the things it can enable us to do, but also it has very, very negative consequences as well, as we know from, you know, the Cambridge Analytica project and all those kind of things. Exactly. And I guess this is where some issues of politics come in, because then there has to be choices that are made by how these sort of new knowledge in different fields gets applied to society or applied in society, right? So, But it's the most tricky issue Mm. for politics. Oh, of course. Because in a sense, it's not unambiguous right or, right or left. Exactly, right. And there's, yeah, and people exactly. want to find things that, you know, that the Labour Party can go in for or the Conservative Party, but it's not like that. Right. Knowledge right. is not like that. Right. So, I mean, this sort of brings up this idea of, you know, what is truth? And, and we sort of live in this moment of fake news oh, yeah. and where journalism is sort of, you know, they feel the need to present both sidism. So in every article there's, you know, here's what one person says, but we also have the opposite take by this other group that has other interests. Do you think that powerful knowledge, this idea that we've been talking about, can actually help, you know, societies today sort of get over or get through this idea of fake news and where truth is relative and anyone can have as many different truths as we can count. I think the notion, and there are two things that need to be clarified there, I think. One is that, in fact, there's a difference between, if you like, I can't think of quite the right term, difference between absolute truth and if something more like procedural truth. Right. I mean, there is, and in a sense, I would use the term for procedural truth, better knowledge rather than, in fact, uh, another version of truth. There's always better knowledge, knowledge, and that takes you back to the fact there's better knowledge in different disciplines. There's better plays, better films, and then the reason, what better means is that you can get the background, the argument, the evidence, and so forth, for why you claim to be better. And it's very, very important that, in fact, school education in particular actually focuses on better knowledge. So isn't one person's idea of better different from another's? Well, it's potentially better, but in a sense, one of the things that schools try to do is to give students access to the specialised communities who spend their life on trying to clarify the better knowledge. And that gives the historians, they don't have an answer. You you know, anybody can have a view about the origins of the American War of Independence or whatever. But what historians do can document to you what happened and why and the arguments that they can make. And in a sense, and therefore we turn to them, but we don't turn to them for an absolute truth. We turn to them because, in fact, what... The way that the the issue, I would say the way it's important for everybody to be thinking about knowledge, not necessarily about powerful knowledge, that's not always that helpful. But in a sense, if they think about powerful knowledge, they'll realize that they are involved in some judgment, but there are limits to their judgment because of specialization. I can't make a judgment about some technical thing involved in artificial intelligence, 
but I can make some broader judgment about what assumptions about intelligence the AI people are making, because I, you know, that's what philosophers and sociologists so there are, it's a question of where your own specialization applies. Right. So, you know, it's interesting, this idea of trying to, you know, view specialized knowledge or view powerful knowledge within specialized fields, within specialized disciplines, because at the same time in higher education, we hear a lot about trying to be cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary, trying to not simply work within single disciplines, but work across disciplines to get at certain issues that, that don't fall neatly in one area, right? So for instance, one example that I can think of is climate change, right? Because that obviously has issues that not only impact you know, environmental studies and physics and, you know, but also sociology, also technology. So how, you know, how do you understand or how can cross-disciplinary thinking fit within ideas of powerful knowledge? Climate change, I mean, I'm not a geographer, but climate change is a, a very interesting example because there was a debate about whether, in fact, climate change should be introduced or not and it's got in the primary school. And some people th thought it, it should because it's relevant and practical and happening every day. I would make the argument that in fact, that is fine, but if you don't really know what climate is, then to, to think about the consequences of climate change is absurd. So I would take the view that in a sense, the starting assumption of schooling is to focus on, uh, if you like, disciplines which provide you with the intellectual basis for being transdisciplinary. Right. And um, I wouldn't introduce, I mean, and certainly I used to teach chemistry as a school teacher, and I used to feel much happier. I often had to teach physics and biology, but I didn't know much. And I didn't feel that I was such a good teacher then, whereas I knew my subject, and that's why people could basically get excited about it if right. I taught them, and also they could learn. So I think that, in fact, it's very important to see the interrelationships between the discipline or the subject and the interdisciplinary inquiry. Because, of course, if you look at the, for instance, UCL's range of, of research, a lot of it is interdisciplinary. Mm. But the people who work in the interdisciplinary fields have a strong background in some discipline or other. Right. So there, you know, you need to specialize in a particular knowledge tradition, yes. but then you also have to have the skills to be able to talk to people and work with people in other disciplines. But I think that what's really important there is particularly at the school level, mm. it's slightly different, but right. similar to the university level, is that in fact, what a subject, because we, England, anyhow, we tend to talk about subjects in schools, disciplines in universities, right, right. a crude distinction, but nevertheless. Um, that what's, what's very important, I think, is that in fact, if you come to school from your everyday knowledge, a subject gives you a sense of your identity as a learner, of whether you're progressing, what's better knowledge and what's less good. And in a sense, it provides an important resource for you um, because, and also at some point or other, you may come across the boundaries of the subject and then you know what what you can speak about and what intent you need to inquire or talk to colleagues in other subjects and so forth. So I think, I think the boundaries between subjects have a very important role for the progress of learners. Right. And we've gone against that. I mean, I now find, I 
don't teach uh, master's courses as I used to. But what I used to find was that, in fact, the disciplines had got broken up and there were these interdisciplinary modules. And I would have 20 or 30 students. And some of them had never done any sociology before. Some of them had done lots. And um, that's not the best context right. for taking them on. Because how do you teach yeah. such a diverse uh, group And of I'm students. not sure you do. You yeah. see, I think that they, they would be better to have done some courses in sociology or economics and psychology. Before and moving up to... Then move up. Right, yeah. right. I mean, so go, and going back to this issue of climate change. So before you can learn about the what's happening in climate change right. in a cross-disciplinary way, you need to have the the real good foundation of what climate is. And it's quite an abstract concept. Climate. It sure is, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like weather and all these right, things. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and climate is not weather. It's no, 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 it's not. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's important, you know. So, So what then do you think of someone like Greta Thunberg? You know, this, oh. she's the 16, 17-year-old that is making all of these speeches and sort of leading a massive social movement across the world to get politicians uh, to address the issue of climate change or what, what she calls the climate crisis. Like, is, is she working in powerful knowledge or is this more of the everyday knowledge? Like, how would you... How would you understand the phenomenon of Greta Thunberg? Well, that's a good question, actually. I mean, she's obviously a very bright and thoughtful girl, no question about it. Uh, and she's thought a lot about the issues and so forth. But I think, I don't think she's so much a leader. I think she's being used, and I don't use that negatively, that people think, well, if we can show that there's somebody of her age who's got these things, she represents something. They may convince some people that, in fact, another academic who really knows about it, who has the specialized knowledge, which she doesn't have, she's got a concern. And I'm, I think we can respect that. Um, but I think she's being used as a sort of, you know, rather like that um, uh, extraordinary Pakistani girl, Malala. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, she got used you know, got the Nobel Prize, not because in one sense she deserves it, but to symbolize something that she stood for, mm. was a kind of courage and bravery and a kind of concern about it. And I think they're very much the same. And I'm sure that Greta will get some kind of Nobel Prize at some point, mm. just because, in fact, for a 16-year-old to do that, everybody thinks it's wonderful. They can't really criticize because she's only 16. Right. But I don't think it's not the knowledge that's the important thing. It's a symbol of the young girl. I think one of the things that's so powerful about Greta is her ability to take specialized knowledge in the research literature in diverse fields that focus on climate and climate yeah. change and say them in ways that are so easily understood by people, from politicians to you know other school children, but also to adults yeah. right, who aren't in that specialized knowledge. So she's almost, I see her almost as translating the specialized knowledge into sort of everyday knowledge. And it's become popularized in a way where now there's sort of this common language. You know, even the idea of calling it the climate crisis rather than climate change, you know, in many ways that discursive change is, um, or linguistic change is to her credit. Yeah, no, I... And, but it might have been an adult. It could have been somebody right, else. Right. But in fact, it's symbolic mm. that it isn't an adult. Right. And therefore, people, in a way, have to listen to it a bit. I don't think she's done a massive amount of reading. I, see, I, think I actually think she has. Well, she's obviously done yeah. more than most 16-year-olds. <laughs> but um, I, I, in a sense, I think it's less 
I mean, I agree with you that her ability to articulate and to express in accessible that is, is admirable. It's almost as if she's a specialist in communication rather than in yeah, climate knowledge. Yeah, right. I mean, that's yeah, that's a, a good point because she really is capable yeah. of, of talking about some of these complex but issues. But I think it's her as the symbol uh, rather than just what she mm -hmm. says. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's complex. She's sort of becoming multiple things, right? right? As she's getting more and more famous yeah, and more, yeah, yeah. You know, her face is known all over the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, in... I read a little bit about your history before coming into this interview, and it's quite striking that I learned that in when you were a young yeah. lecturer, I think about probably the same age I am now, yeah. in the same institute, um, you wrote a book called Knowledge and Control. That's right. Um, which was very much about how knowledge or school knowledge is socially constructed to basic to privilege the ruling classes, mm -hmm. those with power, and disadvantage the workers. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 50 years, we're beginning to sort of, you know, in this conversation today, we're, we're not really talking about the social construction of knowledge anymore. You're talking about powerful knowledge, these disciplinary knowledges. I mean, I realized that in a sense, uh, the development, well, first of all, I think that in a sense, unless you, unless you're a very religious person, social construction is a rather banal notion that is true, that all knowledge is humanly constructed by groups of people in particular contexts. And what's important to say about that is that, I think, is that one of the things that's continued to is that therefore it's also always potentially accessible to anyone because it's a human thing. It's not, you know, it's not God, you know, it's not the universe or something like that and uh, or some divine being or creator or anything like that and i think that was but if you follow through the social construction you end up by saying focusing only on the social and and therefore on the whole on power and true knowledge is a knowledge that the powerful have you get to knowledge of the powerful right. and you don't actually get to any understanding of the knowledge the knowledge itself disappears because it's all social. It's kind of a, it's a kind of sociological imperialism. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, and uh, it's interesting that in fact, um, you know, Marx, who was the first social constructivist, if you like, I mean, he had this notion of post the revolution, something more like primitive communism, where everybody was able to do everything. Now, I think that's mistaken. He was an anti-specialization person. And uh, so I think I realized, I suppose I got a lot of flack for the first time, not the only time in my life, <laughs> a lot of flack from the academics and people about uh, social constructivism. And rightly, but I want to hold on to the fact that it's still got an element of truth, just mm -hmm. that we tend to convert it into the whole truth. Yeah. And that was, I think, that, that was what was misleading. So, and I think I, particularly, what was important for me was in, uh, in the early 90s, I went out, I spent a lot of time in South Africa, as a kind of consultant with the democratic movement on developing a new education system, because obviously they were just about to abolish apartheid, which had in a sense determined their education system, and now what they were going to do. And the only theory I had at the time was a social construction theory, which basically said, basically you should let everyone be free to construct their own knowledge. And in fact, because that's what people used to flag, wave a flag saying, you know, knowledge is a social construct. But of course, the poor teachers hadn't a clue. They were there in the schools, and what on earth did they do? 
And in a sense, there was chaos in the schools. And in a sense, and what South Africa has been doing ever since, is trying to recover from that <laughs> idea to realise that there is actually something real about the world. This is where social realism comes. There's something real about the world. We don't just social construct as we will. We social construct an external world, whether it's social or material or whatever. And we try and improve our understanding of that material, of that world. And I then, and then I went back and I came across Durkheim and I reread Durkheim, who I read and misunderstood when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> um, and he was the starting point for me and the influence wow. of Bernstein as well, and indeed Vygotsky. So I, I looked for an alternative. And in a sense, bringing knowledge back in, the book is a kind of conclusion, but it's not a conclusion. It doesn't solve the problem. It just says here is a way of thinking that is much better than the way we had before. And um, that social realism. But in fact, that requires you to accept the importance of specialization, to accept the importance of an external world, to accept the importance that you never have the absolute truth. You're always trying to improve it. I mean, the people in quantum physics are trying to improve quantum physics uh, to make it a more adequate account of, you know, yeah. uh, of the atom. So from social constructivism to social realism, and now you're bringing knowledge back in and you're working, where to next? Well, I mean, I think that the, um, when we came to powerful knowledge and the idea that there is better knowledge and that that should be the basis for the curriculum for all pupils, because in England, as you probably know, in probably the same states, we had a kind of diversified model of knowledge that, in fact, for the kids who appeared to be, in quotes, not academic, you would give them something more like everyday knowledge. But, of course, that actually kept perpetuated the inequalities for them. So, in a sense, so the, the thing that I'm focusing on now primarily is that, in fact, the curriculum is about stipulating the best knowledge, Right. And that's fine uh, that you can do that. But if you're thinking about education, that in fact the educational problem is the stipulation and the, the transmission problem. Mm. And that in a sense, because you can't transmit the knowledge that is produced by researchers, there has to be, um, Bernstein calls, recontextualization of that, and which involves the relationship between the teacher and the pupil. And that, in fact, if you don't do that and you think it's only the curriculum and stipulation, then you, you get a curriculum which involves expecting people to mug up, to memorize, to reproduce. You don't actually give them an access to knowledge which is about changing their thinking. Uh, you don't. Well, Michael Young, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure to talk today. Thank you very much. Not at all. I've enjoyed the discussion. Michael Young is a professor of sociology of curriculum at UCL's Institute of Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements. 
and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 